There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome back to The Prospect Interview, where we speak to the brightest minds and talk about the ideas that matter in politics, arts and society. I'm Tom Clark, editor of Prospect magazine, and today I'm joined by a seasoned hand of Westminster reporting, Steve Richards, to talk about the prime ministers that never were. Leadership plots are rarely far from the surface in politics, and especially at party conference season. They're the stuff of late night drinks in the bar there, and also a great staple of political journalism throughout much of the year. But in the course of an impressive and varied career in that journalism, from writing columns to hosting podcasts, it's gradually dawned on Steve that all the excitement usually comes to nothing at all. He's written a new essay for Prospect making just that case and a whole new book about potential prime ministers who tend to remain just that. Might have beens. Um, so, Steve, um, you've got a big idea here, but rather than set out a theory, I thought it'd be nice to let it emerge in a few little stories uh, about um, individuals. Um, so, first of all, Harold Wilson. Well, Harold Wilson, in a way, is is one of the most vivid examples of what you said in your introduction, Tom. From the late 60s onwards, there was feverish speculation about the future of Harold Wilson and who might replace him. Uh, in the late 60s, the favoured alternative was Roy Jenkins, a famously successful Home Secretary, and then a very successful Chancellor. And such was the feverish speculation that in the late 60s, I think it was 68, maybe 69, Wilson, in the middle of a speech on other matters, paused and said, you may be wondering what's been going on over the last few weeks. I'll tell you what's going on. I'm going on. And that, uh, Wilson used wit like a political weapon. Uh, that was a reference to all the speculation that he was about to be toppled. Now, not only was he not toppled, he continued to be Prime Minister until 1976, or leader of the Labour Party. He lost an election, won another two, won a referendum on Europe. And yet, even after that immediate period of feverish speculation, it continued to torment him all the way through. And I think it was one of the factors why, in the end, he, he's the only one who's voluntarily resigned of modern prime ministers, why he went. He just found the burden of being surrounded by people who wanted his job too much. 
I think, though, he was more secure than even he dared to realise. And then you talk about John Major. Yeah. John Major, after winning a remarkable election, really, in 1992, the fourth successive Conservative election victory, uh, famously, Britain then was forced out in a humiliating way of the exchange rate mechanism in September 1992. And after that, his leadership was a form of hell. With endless speculation that he was about to fall, Michael Portillo was about to take over, Michael Heseltine was about to take over, to the point where Major felt so burdened by this speculation and insecurity that he conducted that weird leadership contest while he remained Prime Minister. He resigned as Tory leader and had a leadership contest in, I think it was July 1995. But step back from all that endless reporting about Major's fragility, and he was Prime Minister continuously from November 1990 until the 1997 election. Uh, He was not toppled. He wasn't actually challenged. He himself invited a challenge by resigning as Tory leader. And so he endured, as they tend to do. And then you've got um, the dead woman walking, Theresa May. Oh, Oh, yeah. After the uh, 2017 election, which Theresa May famously fought and then lost the Conservative small overall majority, that weekend... Um, speaking to Tory politicians and other journalists, there was feverish speculation that she couldn't last much longer. George Osborne, uh, the former Chancellor, of course, went on the Mar show and said with uh, a degree of glee that she was a dead woman walking. About two hours later on the Sunday politics programme, I was on a panel each week with a couple of other journalists and Andrew Neil, and we all agreed she would struggle to make it to that year's party conference. Well, as we all know, she survived uh, for another few years until, of course, July 2019, when Boris Johnson took over. So that's quite a long time for a dead woman to keep going. So we get we get the idea then that, like... Um you know, prime ministers are always about to fall under the bus and then they, they, they kind of don't as, as a rule. Um, uh, now, do you think, um, I mean, you make this case very persuasively and like, um, but do you think, well, why do you think it is? Is it about the office, the power to set the agenda and the, and the patronage? Or do you think it's actually just that the type of people who get to the top have got something that means that they will stick around? I think that's a really interesting question. And I think it's a combination of two of the factors that you uh, pointed to. First of all, character. There's no doubt in my mind that some of the prime ministers we never have, have never had, uh, would have been better prime ministers than some of those who we did have. That's a subjective thing when you choose the people. But I think objectively, some of them were more legally and weighty than the prime ministers we did have. However, what prime ministers have almost by definition, because they've got to the very top, is a steely ruthlessness and a stamina that means that they are determined to hold on to what they've got. Many of them are tormented during the period they're in number 10. They hate lots of it. But they are determined 
not to let go. So it's partly a matter of character. But they do have considerable powers, of which patronage is a very important one. Uh, Cabinet ministers or those who want to be cabinet ministers make a calculation. They know that for all this speculation, they kind of get my theory that it's quite likely this prime minister will be in place. And so they dance to the prime minister's tunes and are pretty wary of showing too much solidarity with a rival. When they calculate that a rival is likely to seize the crown, then you could almost feel the shifts of loyalty. When it was clear that Gordon Brown was going to succeed Tony Blair, you watch people like Jack Straw and others dance to Gordon Brown's tunes and no longer Tony Blair's. But for much of the time, uh, you know, aspiring prime ministers like Michael Heseltine fight quite lonely crusades because he or others like him don't have the patronage. So I think it's a combination of character and prime ministerial power that means they last a lot longer than the kind of feverish speculation around them would ever suggest. Um, it's maybe You mentioned um, Gordon Brown and Tony Blair there, and that one is maybe worth just pausing on for a minute because... That was a rare case where there was lots and lots and lots of plotting and uh, that sort of thing from, I don't know, 2003 onwards. And it kind of got there in the end. Um, it took yeah. a very long time. But it's a rare success story for the for the plotting, isn't it? it, it it's a really rare success story. A, one of the other themes of the book is for all the speculation around chancellors. Look at Rishi Sunak. Um, they rarely make it. Um, Roy Jenkins didn't, Rab Butler didn't, Dennis Healy didn't, um, and, the, and Ken Clark didn't. All chancellors who were seen as likely next prime ministers. Why did they fail? That's a, a kind of urgently topical thing given Sunak's position. Um, but Gordon Brown did. And I think it is a tribute to his stamina and willfulness that he managed it, albeit at the very end of the period he hoped <laughs> to succeed. And as you say, it took a huge amount of plotting and scheming and tireless planning. Uh, but he, he got there and, uh, you know, lots of people condemn him for the way he behaved in uh, succeeding Tony Blair, but he did succeed. And most people in his position don't. <laughs> Um, let's just, as you say, you, like you mentioned Rishi there, we're, we're in conference season, so let's, let's just be topical for, for a minute. Um, uh, Angela Rayner, the Deputy Labour leader, did an extremely dramatic and uh, interesting interview just before um, the Labour conference um, and made some very crowd-pleasing announcements there, having been almost sacked and then not sacked by Keir Starmer earlier in the year. I guess that was the main kind of um, uh, bit of leadership speculation around this year. Yeah, although the, as ever, there was quite a lot, which is why I argue this book is, is urgently topical. Um, look at the Labour conference for a moment. Uh, Rachel Reeves' speech was widely and I think justifiably regarded as a success. And immediately people started writing 
That means uh, Angela Rayner hasn't got the field clear to herself. Rachel Reeves is now a contender for the leadership. Oh, look at Andy Burnham. He was down stirring it because he wants the leadership. All the moves were seen through the prism partly of future or quite immediate leadership bids. However, you then have to pose the question, how? What is the context in which Starmer goes? Uh, Rachel Reeves won't challenge him, that's for sure. She wants to be Chancellor, uh, above all other things. She's not going to challenge Starmer. So they would have to, uh, maybe Rayner will, but it will um, be risky for her to do so. Um, And it's very unusual uh, for a leader of any sort to be challenge like this. Um, So how do they get it? But that's how they were reported. And I've no doubt Angela Rayner would like to succeed Keir Starmer. And it's valid to note that. But the how? Yeah. And of course, far from clear. In a way, one of the main things that came out of the Labour conference is they're changing their rules about how you launch a challenge, making it a bit more difficult because you'd need more MPs to be behind you. Now, um, it's the logic of your piece, I think, is that actually that might be good news for Labour to give the MPs a bit more of a say. Yeah, I think, I mean, of the Prime Ministers we never had on the Labour side, if you look at them, um, Neil Kinnock, who was seen as the likely next Prime Minister on the night of the 92 election until the exit poll came out, uh, Ed Miliband, who was similarly seen as the likely next Prime Minister until the election uh, exit poll came out on the night of 2015 election. And then Jeremy Corbyn, who was seen as a possible next Prime Minister, certainly in the autumn after the 2017 election. Uh, it's, it's really interesting on that front, by the way, because some people said, How, what, what the heck are you doing putting Corbyn in? He was never seen as a Prime Minister. It's really interesting reading the the book just out by Theresa May's former chief of staff, Gavin Barwell, about how seriously they treated Corbyn after the 2017 election, because they recognised that the Tories had done quite well in terms of votes in 2017, the best since 1983. But the reason they had lost all those seats is because Labour did so much better than anticipated. And they took it deadly seriously in the autumn, at least, of 2017, spring of 2018, uh, how they were dealing with this new electoral threat. Anyway, that's they're all in there because they were perceived as possible prime ministers. However, all of them really struggled because in the leadership contest, to varying degrees, they did not win the support of the majority of Labour MPs. And therefore, Labour MPs at different points felt less invested in the project. Obviously, with Corbyn, we used to get public uh, exclamations of despair from Labour MPs. But to some extent with Ed Miliband, where there were regular briefings against him from Labour MPs. And when Neil Kinnock hit low points, uh, Labour MPs started saying, you know, we didn't vote for him, he's not up for it. And for that reason alone, I think there is a strong case for giving Labour MPs a bigger say Um, It was interesting, Chris Mullin, the former Labour MP and minister, tweeted me saying, what about the Tory rules where MPs vote down to the last two candidates and then uh, the membership uh, votes? 
that seems to me quite a good proposition because when you look at Tory leadership contests, the winner usually has had the majority backing of MPs and therefore there is less of this corrosive tension between parliamentary party and leader that you get with some Labour leaders. I think one of the reasons why Starmer is relatively secure, given that Labour should be about 20 points ahead in the polls at the moment, is that he did get the backing of most Labour MPs and they do feel a connection with him and uh, an investment in his leadership, which they certainly didn't with Jeremy Corbyn and to some extent with Ed Miliband and Neil Kinnock. So yeah, I, for that, it's not that they necessarily have got sharper judgment in choosing potential leaders, but they are so part of a leader's life on a daily basis. They got to feel a direct engagement with the project of whoever is leader. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I can see that. Um, and then let's come over then to the um, Tory um, side. One thing that pops up, in the piece is this idea they can, they can get rid of their leader with a vote of confidence, whereas Labour can't. And indeed that happened, didn't it, with, with Ian Duncan-Smith and there was a failed vote yeah. of no confidence in Theresa May. We're still a long way off a vote of no confidence in Boris Johnson, aren't we? Oh, miles, miles away. I mean, he the, the election win in December 2019 makes him at the moment, uh, and the weakness of his ministerial team makes him the most powerful prime minister in modern times um that's not necessarily a good thing but i think you can if you're measuring power he is the most powerful prime minister look at that cabinet reshuffle it was his and his alone um whereas when tony blair reshuffled his cabinet it was a negotiation with gordon brown when even margaret thatcher reshuffled her cabinet she was to her credit keen to give uh big jobs to people not close to her ideologically. Harold Wilson had to balance his cabinet in every reshuffle. Johnson did what he wanted. He apparently spoke to the likes of Sunak, but it was not really a consultation. He does what he wants, and it's very unusual for a prime minister to have such power. That will change, and it will change when or if Labour move into a lead in the opinion polls, and that then his great asset as seen by Conservative MPs of being an election winner will be called into question. They don't admire him as an administrator for obvious reasons, um, but he is seen as a winner and that gives him an authority. So no, but you're right to note that this device of uh, a relatively easy way of triggering a vote of confidence, I think in the Ian Duncan Smith case, uh, saved the Conservative Party. Uh, I think they would have been slaughtered if they'd carried on with his leadership and um uh and, and the, absence, May, well, of course she... the, the, the absence of it arguably contributed to let the same mechanism arguably con con contributed to Labour's defeat in um in 2019 in the end yeah I mean if you look back if Corbyn had I can understand why he didn't because uh you know if it had gone in a different direction he was close to getting uh, becoming the biggest party in, a, in, in, in the House of Commons. But if he had resigned soon after that 2017 election, uh, he, he would have been seen as one of... Uh, I, I know people mock him for sort of hailing that result when they lost, but you know what I mean? They made big gains. 
um, he would have been seen in a different light. But December 2019 was a slaughter. And it's very interesting to measure why someone who in the autumn of 2017 was seen certainly within number 10. Um, and I've heard George Osborne and Tony Blair say, yeah, and the Corbyn might get it next time. How he moved from that to a slaughter in December 2019 is, is another interesting exploration in the book. Um, and um, let's let's come back to the book um now we've done we've done the, the the news bit. I mean, having argued that wannabes are destined to remain wannabes, you're obviously nonetheless fascinated by them. You know a lot of them. Um, you know all of them. Uh, the ones in the book here, apart from um, Rab Butler, who's before your time, obviously. Yeah, yeah. I wouldn't want to exaggerate. I mean, I've I've interviewed when he was very old, Dennis Healy and uh, Roy Jenkins after he had written his books on Gladstone and. Um, uh, Churchill, but I didn't know, I didn't interview them at the height of their power because that would make me about 95. Um, <laughs> I'm writing something about being described as a veteran in a couple of the book reviews and I cannot bear the term because I still see myself as youthful. But um, yeah, I, I've kind of met, met them all in, with varying degrees of um, closeness, except for Butler. Um, but um like, have you got, you know, you're obviously fascinated by this this sort of exercise of, you know, how close did they come and uh, and how would they have been? Looking down your list here of, of 10 between Butler and Corbyn, I'm not really talking about whether you'd agree with their policies, but of this mm. list, is there, is there one or two you'd single out as people who you think would just have been very good at the job? Yeah. Um, well, I think uh, the one that would have changed the course of history for sure is Michael Heseltine, if he had won in 1990, a passionate pro-European at a point when the Conservative Party had not solidified into this um, anti-European Brexit-supporting party. Far from it. There wasn't a single Conservative MP in 1990 calling for Britain to leave the European Union. And I think he would have won the 92 election by a bigger margin than John Major. He's a better campaigner. Um, and that would have given him the space to have reconfigured the Conservative Party. I think it would have remained a, a big section of it, Eurosceptic, but he would just have had to take them on on Europe. He could not have led a party moving towards a deep Euroscepticism. And, and that would have been, A, an interesting battle. But I think if he had won the 92 election, he would have had the authority to do it. And I suspect we wouldn't have been out of the European Union. Um, I think Rab Butler would have been a more formidable opponent uh, to Harold Wilson in 1964 if he had won the 1963 contest. Butler was a kind of modernising reformer. And that was Wilson's pitch in 1964, very potent against Alec Douglas Hume, but harder against Rab Butler, who would have also, I think, been as an administrator an effective prime minister. Um, but on 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 the Labour side, we will never know. I mean, if Neil Kinnock had won in 1992, it would probably have been in a hung parliament and there would have been uh, uh, big problems. But, uh, you know, again, uh, Kinnock was a pro-European. It, it would have been one hell of a formidable cabinet. Uh, to Kinnock's great credit, in, by 1992, he was leading a good team. John Smith would have been Chancellor. Both Blair and Brown would have been in the cabinet. Robin Cook... 
um, you look down the list and it would have been quite a powerful government. But it's much harder with some of these because context is so potent in politics and it would have been in a hung parliament and that would have presented huge difficulties. But the, the job is about um, often making decisions. I mean, it's funny because if we've got Theresa May or um, Tony Blair or Gordon Brown as Prime Minister, we'd say it's this very serious job where you have lots of decisions. But of course, we've got Boris Johnson at the, at the moment, yeah. so it's yeah. a, a little bit different. But um, in his way, Boris Johnson seems to kind of thrive in the job. Obviously, like um, some of us might think he's not doing it brilliantly, but he um, he kind of gets things done in his own chaotic way, doesn't he, uh, for better or worse. I did wonder with Neil Kinnock whether he, um, he he loves chatting, he loves talking. You talk in the thing about having a long, like, lunch with lots of wine with him. Um, but would, would, he, would he have, like, he wouldn't have got through cabinet committees like a sort of Clement Attlee, would he, I wouldn't have thought? Uh, that, that is interesting. I mean, he had by then, by 1992, been leader of the Labour Party for nine years. That is one heck of a test for anybody, especially the Labour Party then. Incidentally, far more difficult to lead and divided, certainly in the early 80s, than it is now. Keir Starmer has decided to highlight certain divisions, uh, but it's, it's much less divided than the 80s. Um, when it was split on every big issue of the time, from Europe to disarmament, etc. And so I think he did pass quite a few tests of leadership. I don't think he would have enjoyed it. I think Johnson is enjoying it. Um, I, I, Kinnock really didn't enjoy leading the Labour Party. In, um, when uh, an authorised biography was written, he replied to the biographer, what a bloody way to spend my 40s. Um, so I don't think he's one of those who's going to enjoy it. But, but to be honest, I don't know anyone really who's loved leading the Labour Party. Maybe Tony Blair, but he was leading it at its most uh, subservient, really, um, but, you know, certainly in opposition. Um, when it just ached to win um, and they knew with him they had a winner and that gave him the space to probably start to enjoy himself. Um, I mean, you're fairly clear that Jeremy Corbyn, had he by some miracle made it, probably wouldn't have enjoyed it. I mean, he really wouldn't have enjoyed all the all the endless cabinet committees and things, would he? Well, I, as I say, the book is not a, a counterfactual speculating about what they would have been like because we we don't know and there is so much material to try and make sense of why they all failed these figures who incidentally at their peak were talked about in the media as much as prime ministers um in, in every single case um but since you ask i i sensed relief really when he uh uh, lost and gave up the leadership. I, I end the piece about uh, Corbyn that uh, in the first Prime Minister's questions uh, during the lockdown, hardly anyone allowed in the Commons, uh, Keir Starmer's first Prime Minister's questions, Corbyn was on the back benches asking a question from the back benches and a lot of columnists said, what the hell's he doing there? You know, he's, you know, he should have disappeared. But he was returning to what is more natural to him, you know, being on the back benches. Uh, a dissenting campaigner um, and that is him uh, being prime minister in a hung parliament facing a pandemic would I think have been a form of hell for him and um, like I'm just wondering if there's a 
a sort of quality of, of being a good pretender, like charismatic people like um, Barbara Castle, Michael Portillo, you know, some of your names here. I'm just, um, you know, they give a really good speech and they're kind of really interested. But, but is that different from leading in power? Oh, there's a huge difference between aspiring to lead and leading. No one knows whether they'll have the qualities of leadership and be seen as a leader until they become one. Barbara Castle once famously said of Margaret Thatcher, power made her beautiful. And by that, she meant that the crown suited. Um, and many people thought it wouldn't, that she would be impossibly awkward to the point of embarrassment. But it worked. She, um, she became the big election winner that she did. Um, those who aspire are often burdened by the perception of burning ambition. It's very interesting with Portillo. He did ache to be leader and he was the not just the favourite of the Thatcherites in the mid-1990s, but a kind of idol of the Thatcherites, the chosen successor to the great lady. And going to fringe meetings where he spoke in the mid-90s at conservative conferences, it was as if he were a rock star descending amongst his flock. They were all about 85, mainly men, but they were sweating with feverish excitement. And he descended amongst them. And although he had an enigmatic charisma, I never sensed he was wholly at ease with this role. And, um, of course, he famously didn't contest the leadership when John Major stood down as Tory leader in 1995. And, and, and a lot of these people, this is the other side of the fact that prime ministers stay on longer than kind of assumptions suggest. A lot of these uh, characters in the book, as I say, were burdened by the perception of aching ambition. Um, but actually only contested the leadership once, and then with a degree of ambiguity. So Michael Portillo only fought one leadership contest in 2001. And again, I sensed great relief when he didn't win it. He went off to the opera that night and declared he was leaving politics. He was clearly unsure whether he wanted it by that point. And all those doting Thatcherites had left him. Uh, it, it, it's an epic story, the Portillo one. They had all turned to other people, Ian Duncan Smith. They felt he had betrayed them. And uh, he found it all very difficult. But I did a programme with him later, and he told me every day he still looked at whoever was Prime Minister and sort of wished he was that person. So there was a part of him who wanted it, but there was another part who clearly didn't. And and that, that's the case with a lot of these, with David Miliband, you know, under con constant pressure to challenge Gordon Brown when he was Foreign Secretary. And he half encouraged the speculation to the point that if he just crossed the road, people saw it as a leadership bid. And there was a fever around David as well, which I felt was slightly at odds with his character. And he never did challenge Gordon Brown. And then, of course, he fought the one leadership contest, the famous one with his brother, and lost it. Um, and that chapter, by the way, is about both the brothers, David and Ed, who both were seen at different times and sometimes simultaneously as a likely leader stroke prime minister. 
And uh, in a way, you know, this is not an exploration of failure because many of these people achieve more than most in politics. But that was a rather sad chapter to write because here were two decent people and not actually burdened by aching ambition at the beginning of their career. Discovering ambition and having ambition thrust upon them more or less at the same time and then actually discovering a desire to lead and a sort of bigger ego than they used to have. And, uh, well, we all know the outcome. Neither of them made it. But, um, uh, you know, uh, and I'd argue in a way that politically they kind of destroyed each other. I mean, yeah, it certainly seems like one one lesson we can certainly take away from this is if there's any ambiguity about wanting that top job, you really are very, very unlikely to... uh, get it anyway um absolutely that is all from us steve thanks so much for joining us um uh you should read steve's um essay in prospect on um uh, why prime ministers always persist and why moving boris johnson is going to be so hard the prime ministers we never had success and failure from butler to corbyn by steve is just out now brand new with atlantic books so look out for that as well Um, Our producer is Sarah Collins. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please do leave us a rating and review. Goodbye, stay safe, and we'll see you next week.